Let us now open our copies of God's Word to Mark's Gospel, the ninth chapter, as we continue to work our way through Mark's Gospel together. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. through verse 29. But first, let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pour out our hearts and souls before Thee. This has been a week of great sadness. This has been a week of great gladness. Thank God to whom we now pray for the gospel. That gospel which gives life and overrules and destroys death. How thankful we are for the Savior's work, for the purchase He made, for the price He paid that we might be free from our guilt, that our debt might be forever removed as far as the east is from the west, cast into the depths of the sea, away from the condemning presence of our holy God. And as we come to the text this morning, may we see something of the Savior's love and compassion for His people. May we understand that the kingdom of God to which we belong is a kingdom into which we could never have brought ourselves. May we see Jesus only, Jesus alone, as the Savior of sinners, as the Redeemer of God's elect, as the one who grants us persevering grace, as the one who keeps his promises, as the one who has loved us with an everlasting love and will never let his people go, taking us all the way home, living under the promise. Help us, Father, to know and feel and sense within our hearts the depth and reality of the covenant that is ordered in all things and sure. And we thank and praise Thee for condescending to redeem and to save us from our sins. For those who may be here today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that the Holy Spirit would draw and that those who do not know Thee would leave here knowing the Lord Jesus. Hear our prayer. Bless the reading of the Word. Illumine its page by the power of the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit who has given it by divine inspiration so that it is the Word without error, we pray will now illumine it, and we know that the Word of God will not return unto thee void, but will accomplish the purpose whereunto thou dost send it. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. This is the Word of God. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. 
So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose And when he had entered his house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, you will remember that the prior text was the text about the transfiguration in which we saw Jesus glorified. Jesus, as, as he was with the Father in terms of his fellowship with the Father from before the world ever was, but Jesus also as he is seen in his resurrection and ascended body as he intercedes for his people. Jesus being portrayed to us as he is, as the Son of God, God who became man. Now, Raphael saw the connection In his last unfinished painting that was commissioned in 1517, the carefully composed canvas is divided into two distinct parts. Above, it is light and bright, and there is Jesus in his transfigured appearance. Now, whether he should have painted Jesus is not the point. Many thousands have seen the painting, and his theology, his understanding is correct. There above, Jesus in his glory, Moses and Elijah with him, and at the bottom, there is a darker portion. And in that portion, the disciples dispute with the teachers of the law about the boy that they could not cure. The boy's right hand, however, and that of some others, is lifted up, pointing above to the light, to the transcendence of Christ, glory above and distress below. And this is the kind of world into which our Lord Jesus Christ came. The transcendent Christ came into a world of sin, a world of destruction, of strife and unbelief. And all at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, all there is the darkness of the fallen world. We have the world in microcosm, and we see something of the world into which our Savior came. 
Now, the account in Mark is intriguingly composed. It is detailed and it is vivid, and it reads like a personal reminiscence. You'll remember that Papias said that this was Peter's preaching that was taken down by Mark, and it reads that way, doesn't it, as a first-hand account. And we actually see this then with Peter's eyes as he saw it when he was coming down with Jesus, and there was the crowd arguing about the boy that the disciples could not cure. Now we enter into the scene as well, and the first thing that we see is a display of inadequacy in verses 14 through 18. An argument is taking place between Jesus' disciples and the teachers of the law. Jesus walks into the crowd and they were overwhelmed with wonder, or it is translated here in verse 15, greatly amazed, or it could be translated they were astonished. The word astonished is a word that is regularly connected with Jesus' person and work in the Gospels. And well, this should be. Is it true of you that when you think upon Jesus and what he has done for you and what he has accomplished and achieved in this world, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his overcoming of our sin, his removal of our guilt, are you also filled with a sense of astonishment or has it become for you commonplace, though it should never? Now Jesus asks the question in verse 16, what are you arguing about with them? And someone, that is the father, answers from the crowd, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever he, he it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So he was speaking and he expected, I suppose, that the scribes would respond. But this father whose son was in desperate need had brought him to Jesus to heal him. And finding his disciples only, acting as Jesus' representative, he thought that they could heal the boy. Now, his condition was absolutely wretched, wasn't it? Some think that this was epilepsy. I see no indication of that, except the symptoms are similar. But it was not that alone, if it was. It is a very complicated case. The boy is controlled by a demon, and a demon that causes him to experience violent convulsions and foaming at the mouth and gnashing of teeth with speech and hearing complications. And it is truly a pitiful scene, and our compassion goes out to the boy. Our heart's compassion goes out to this father. Now, children who are here this morning, imagine having a need, being sick, for example, and yet being unable to express your need to your parents or to hear their words of comfort. You know those times when you're sick, and the comforting words of your parents makes you feel very warm inside. And you feel better even though you're still sick because you know that you were loved and you were cared for and you can hear words that encourage. This boy had a greater need than anyone here has ever had, has ever experienced. And he could hear no comforting words from his loving earthly father. The demon attempted to destroy the boy, to throw him into the fire or water. And this, of course, is a picture of sin. All of these healing ministries show us something of what the effects of the fall are all about and point us to original sin. This is what sin does. It distorts. It is Satan's desire to mar and destroy and to distort God's image bearer. 
And we need to keep this in mind every time we are tempted to thoughts or attitudes or actions of the heart that are contrary to God's nature, that these things mar, that these things distort, that these things destroy God's image and the world that God created good. Sin is never neutral, and the problem is deep. It is that problem of original sin, our heart's need because of our fall in Adam. We see here the need and the powerlessness of man to do anything about the need. On a fundamental level, the disciples, the Father, they've been unable to do anything to bring healing to the boy. And not only could the Father not help, the boy was powerless, Jesus' disciples were incapable of delivering the boy, and this occasion, the argument with which the text opens, in which the scribes rub it in to the disciples, aren't you able to heal this boy? Where is your power? Where is the Jesus whom you trust? Why aren't you able to heal this boy? Jesus' response to all of this in verse 19 is something to which we need to pay attention. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. The response of Jesus displays his heartbreak over the unbelief of the generation to which he came. It is rather an agonizing cry from the one who is holy, sinless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, altogether holy. As he comes and he speaks of the generation into which he has entered in order that he might redeem and save, now will you dwell on this for a moment? The glory of the transfiguration shows who Jesus is. Behold God's Son, look at him in his transcendent glory, and then he comes down the mountain into a scene of sin and confusion and of noise and argument and demon possession and helplessness and hopelessness, ugly distortion of what is good, and also into a scene of sheer unbelief and incapability. That is the kind of world into which our Savior came. Those are the sorts of people for whom he came, for the ungodly, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man, we confess in the words of the Nicene Creed. But our Lord is also longing for the end of his mission of redeeming sinners for whom he came. How long shall I put up with you? It's as if the Lord is saying, I'm longing to go to that cross in the sense that I'm willing and ready to obey the Father and for this to be accomplished and achieved. How long shall I put up with you? See the contrast. You see the glory and the wonder of it. Do we begin to understand how loved we are that the Lord Jesus would come into a world of sin like this for sinners like me and like you? Do we begin to understand the beauty and wonder of that simple verse of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life? God has come in the flesh. In contrast, 
human inadequacy. The father can't help. The disciples can't help. The boy cannot help himself. The scribes don't care. The crowds are often concerned for themselves. So what would you have done if you were the boy's father? You would have brought the boy to Jesus. And here Jesus comes and he tells Jesus his problem, which leads us to the second thing we see, a cry for help and the nature of faith. A cry for help and the nature of faith in verses 20 through 22. When they brought the boy to Jesus, the demon in complete contempt for Jesus attempted to destroy the boy. In verse 20, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. The violence done by the demon shows the clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Now let me remind you of C.E.B. Cranfield's comment that I brought to you from time to time. A confident certainty of the demon's non-existence may be their greatest triumph. People of God, not to believe in the demonic realm is to fail to see a large component of reality to be what it is. We have seen that even in the news this week. The father is deeply alarmed. Jesus questioned to him, in verse 21, how long has he been like this? Shows his compassion. If the man thinks about this and reflects upon the times in the past in which he has been treated this way by this horrific demon, if he simply reflects upon how long it has been that the boy has been under the, under the dominion of, of Satan, then he will see something of the greatness and glory of who Jesus is and the wonder of what is done when his boy is healed. Miracles were, as I have pointed out consistently in going through Mark with you, miracles were demonstrations of the arrival of the kingdom of God, but they were no less acts of compassion for all that. And this element of compassion remains a sign of the kingdom of God that we Christians continue to demonstrate today. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 24, as he reflects upon how the evil of the world will grow and how this will happen before the return of Christ, and he says that the love of many, because of the proliferation of evil, because this will happen, the love of many will wax, will grow cold. Don't let that happen to you. As we live in an age in which we seem to be so self-protective because of the evil around us and we see the evil of the world, do not let your heart lose its compassion for needy sinners, just as Christ has shown that compassion to you. And so Jesus asks in verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? And then we have the answer, he said, from childhood, and it is often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The man is desperate, isn't he? Desperate to see his son healed. Is God in this? We have a hard time often as believers in Christ with suffering as the place where God meets us that God himself is in the suffering, that God displays himself and his glory in his, 
and His meeting us and our sufferings. Christians have been taught to look for God in obvious empirical ways as evidences of His love, and well, we should, but many just can't comprehend how God can use pain and sorrow to demonstrate His love. And young people, as you grow in grace and you grow in your knowledge of the Lord and you go through experiences in life, this is something that you will understand better. It will deepen in your life that God actually meets me in suffering and draws the character of Christ way down deep in my soul through suffering. Seeing this is part of dying to self and living for Christ. And so Jesus quotes the man's word back to him in order to evoke faith. The man had said, is it possible? Can this really happen? If you can do anything, I've lived with this so long, I've watched my boy, I don't know that anything can heal him, but you're my last resort. If you can do anything. Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. Now, what is the Father's response in verse 24? Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Christ is the man's last resource. Yes, Christ alone is our only Savior and Redeemer. The Father's response in verse 24 is one of the classic, unforgettable utterances of the New Testament. It is thoroughly honest, and it shows us these things. It shows us that true faith is often mingled with incredulity. There can be true and lively faith in Jesus Christ mingled with doubt within our hearts because we are sinners still. And it is not the strength of my faith that saves me. It is the nature, the strength, and the adequacy of the object of faith that saves me. It is Christ who saves me, not my faith, but the one in whom I believe that redeems and saves. And it shows us that faith is never self-focused, but looks away from itself. Faith is born of need. Now, I remembered that one of our stalwart forefathers, J. Gresham Machen, had commented on this text in his 1925 book, What is Faith? I didn't read it in 1925, mind you, but, <laughs> but I remembered that he wrote it in 1925. And listen to what he said. The need of the man in the Gospel of Mark was plain. His son was gnashing with the teeth and wallowing on the ground. But the need of all men, if they could only discern the facts, is equally clear. The great need of the human soul which leads to faith in Christ is found, as we have seen, in the fact of sin. A man never accepts Christ as Savior unless he knows himself to be in the grip of the demon of sin and desires to be set free. 
One may argue with a man on the subject of religion as long as life endures. One may bring forward arguments for the existence of a personal God. One may attempt to prove on the basis of the documentary evidence that only the Christian view of Christ and only his resurrection from the tomb can explain the origin of the Christian religion. Men will listen if they be broad-minded, as however they seldom are today. But repelled by the stupendous nature of the thing that we ask them to believe, they will reject all our arguments and conviction will not be formed. But then, as we despair of bringing them over ever to faith, we receive sometimes an unexpected ally. In some unexpected way, the hollowness and hopelessness of their lives comes home to them. They recognize the awful guilt of sin. And when that recognition comes, the proofs of the Christian religion suddenly obtain for them a new cogency. Everything in the Christian system falls for them into its proper place. And they believe belief in Christ today, as always, can be attained only when there is a sense of need. Do you have that sense of need? He goes on to say, without the sense of dire need, the stupendous miraculous events of Jesus' coming and Jesus' resurrection are unbelievable because they are out of the usual order. But to the man who knows the terrible need caused by sin, these things are valuable just because they are out of the usual order. The man who is under the conviction of sin can accept the supernatural for he knows that there is an adequate occasion for its entrance into the course of this world. Do you know this? Has the Holy Spirit shown you your need? Do you understand that only the stupendous miracle of God becoming man, obeying the law you broke, going to a cross and paying for sin's debt, rising from the dead, only this can meet your need of forgiveness in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Do you see your need? One of the old hymn writers said something like, like um, the, the, the sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Ghost has made him so. Only the Spirit of God can open the heart to show us our real need. And when we do, then there is saving faith granted that we may trust the only one who can redeem and save us from our sins. And Christian, do you sometimes find that your faith is so weak that you wonder if it can be faith at all? If faith and unbelief are mixed in all Christians, the unbelief does not make faith less certain because the object of your faith is certain. This father doesn't dwell on his unbelief he dwells on Christ who can help him, weak though his faith was. All the attention here falls precisely where it should. All of the attention is on Jesus, right where it belongs. That leads us to the third thing we see, which is deliverance for this boy, deliverance. In verse 25, Jesus rebukes and judges and shows himself to be the Lord that he is, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. You cannot resist me, says Jesus. Casting out demons has the coming of the kingdom as its foundation. 
And in verse 26, it was a violent response. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But read on. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. You see how violent? Because that is how Satan hates you and desires to destroy you. There is here the piling up in verse 26 and verse 27. There's the piling up of death and resurrection language. It's so very beautiful to see in the Greek New Testament. It is so very clear. And it points ahead. Breaking the grip of the reign of Satan comes by costly means. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The language echoes the raising of Jairus' daughter that we saw in chapter 5. And in verse 27, he uses the very word that is ordinarily used for the resurrection from the dead. The cure points beyond itself to what Jesus will do when he goes to a cross and when he is raised by the power of God from the dead. The cure points beyond to Jesus' own death and resurrection to destroy the reign of Satan. And Jesus says to us through the words of 1 John 3, 8, the reason that I came, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Nothing less than this happens when the Lord converts a sinner. He has in principle already destroyed the devil's work in your life and through progressive sanctification is continuing that destruction because we have now come from death unto life because he has raised us up in his almighty and sovereign omnipotent compassion the incredible joy of redemption should fill all of our hearts as we contemplate this does it fill your heart the power of God to save when people are redeemed and come to Christ it is always at God's initiative it takes a drastic solution, the drastic solution of the cross and resurrection and the application to the heart by the Spirit of God of the truth of the gospel of the risen Lord to save us from our sins. What we sinners need is not a choice. We need a resurrection. And that's what He has brought to you in your conversion. But then we also see a return to this theme of the disciples. Why couldn't they cast out this demon? Why couldn't they heal the boy? And so the fourth thing we see is faith and prayer. Notice verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciple asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus, of course, knows the demonic world. He knows that there are certain kinds of demons that must require that we get upon our knees and plead with the Lord more before it is removed, he's saying to his disciples. But is Jesus saying, you need to work up a stronger faith? That's why you couldn't do it? No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying the opposite. Prayer indicates complete dependence on God. Prayer expresses dependence on His unlimited power. Prayer is the language of dependence. We sing, My faith looks up to Thee, 
thou Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine, now hear me while I pray. Do you see the connection? Where there is little prayer, there is little faith. When our eyes are on the object of our faith, then this compels prayer. And we're no longer concerned with strengthening our faith because when our object of faith is in our eyes, our faith will become strong. And this is why the disciples failed to cast the demon out of the boy. They had been authorized to do so by Jesus, of course, to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, but they could not. The disciples forgot for whom, from whom the gift came. They thought the gift was under their control. Their problem was self-trust. And that's why the answer is prayer, which is the polar opposite of self-trust. They had lost their sense of dependence on Christ. Prayer was needed, not a technique. Prayer is not a pious manipulation of God. It is an expression of dependence on His grace. And God blesses you, blesses us as He does so. Let us stay upon our knees, that our eyes may be fixed upon the object of our faith and not upon ourselves. Acknowledge your dependence of Him. Every day renew your recognition that this good comes from your Father's hand. No wonder then the Lord and Scripture at large encourages persevering faith because prayer is the handmaiden of faith. Now this text is all about faith, isn't it? The disciples did not have the faith to cast out the demon. Others didn't care. They had no faith of any kind. Only Jesus could do this. He calls the Father into a deeper relationship with Him that will strengthen His genuine faith that has been granted Him by the Holy Spirit. The text is all about faith. You know, the Puritan John Owen gives five characteristics of the faith that receives Christ. I've mentioned them to you. It is a receiving faith. It is a looking faith. It is a coming unto Christ faith. It is a fleeing for refuge faith. It is a leaning on God faith. But what I want you to see is that faith in all of these various aspects that rest upon, lean upon, look upon Christ, flee to Him, that in all of these various aspects, true faith is extrospective, not introspective. Faith looking away from self unto Christ. If I have you in a science lab and I tell you to look in the microscope and tell you simultaneously to look at the ceiling, you can't do both. If you are morbidly introspective and focused upon self, you are not looking away unto Christ. And that is the nature of true faith. It is extrospective, not introspective. Now, I want to address those of you who are here today who are not believers in Christ yet. And some of you have been following with more or less interest this series on Mark's gospel. But the whole idea of miracles seems just fantastic to you. Well, let me say, if God sent His Son into the world, this is precisely what one would expect, that He would work miracles displaying that He is the King. And every miracle of Jesus' life points to the culminating miracle of His resurrection. I encourage you to go there. I encourage you to start there, to bring all of the objections that you have 
because truth has nothing to fear, to study the accounts, to study the New Testament on Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and then you will have no trouble with the miracles of Jesus' ministry. But remember what Dr. Machen said. The real issue for someone who does not believe the gospel, the gospel that is from beginning to end supernatural and miraculous, the real issue is that that person does not yet see his need for the miracle. Do you see your need? World religions and philosophies will not help. Moralism will not help. They are about what we do. Christianity is about what God has done for us sinners. And when you see yourself a needy sinner in the presence of a holy God and you have nothing to offer to redeem your soul, the miracles of Jesus will present no problem. And as a matter of fact, you will thank God that he has intervened into this world and he has done this great thing. And you will say to the Lord, Lord, I believe for the very first time I see my desperate need and I believe, help my unbelief, and he will do it. Do you see your need? Your sin has separated you from God. There is no hope without Christ. You can do nothing to save yourself. You can't even bring yourself into a savable state. That's how deep the need is when you finally see that you can do nothing. It is, as one of our fathers said, it is the gospel vice to shut men up to faith. You need Christ to forgive your guilt. Faith in Christ who shed his blood for sinners. And so I want to close with something that might just help you to understand what this is all about. It points you by faith to Christ alone. And I used it recently in the Jim Ryle Memorial. It comes from J.C. Ryle, by the way, who tells of a South Sea Islander who came to Christ and gave this testimony to the missionary. Here was the Islander's testimony of coming to Jesus. He speaks in such picturesque language. He said, I saw an immense mountain with precipitous sides up which I endeavored to climb but when I had attained a considerable height, I lost my hold and fell to the bottom. Exhausted with perplexity and fatigue, I went to a distance and sat down to weep. And while weeping, I saw a drop of blood fall upon that mountain. And in a moment, it was dissolved. What did this testimony mean? The missionary asked him. And he answered, that mountain was my sins. And that drop which fell upon it was one drop of the precious blood of Jesus by which the mountain of my guilt was melted away. So how is this blessing received? Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but only by grace through faith in Christ. And your faith contributes nothing. It simply receives Christ and his salvation. Can you say, Lord, I need that drop of blood on the mountain of my guilt to dissolve it. Lord, I believe right now. I believe. I take you at your word. I believe. I trust in you that you will save the sinner who comes to you by faith. Lord, I believe. But Lord, it's mixed up with so much unbelief. Lord, I believe, but will you help my unbelief? And remember, 
It is not the strength of your faith that saves, but the strength and sufficiency of the object of your faith that saves. Your faith receives Christ, but Christ is the Savior and Redeemer of sinners. And no matter how deep your sin is, His sacrifice on the cross, His bloodshedding, His merit is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through Him, no matter how deep your sin. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen.